0: Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit seekingtruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today is part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, and now Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our discussion tonight of Romans chapter 10. The title tonight is Salvation is Offered to All. I'll start with a quote from St. Jerome, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Now, that's both the Old Testament scripture and the New Testament scripture because they both point us to Jesus Christ. And in fact, for me personally, finding Jesus hidden in the Old Testament is even almost more exciting. Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. St. Jerome is the best known for his translation of most of the Bible into Latin. It was called the Vulgate. He has famous commentaries on all four gospels, and his list of writings is extensive. Jerome is recognized as a saint and a doctor of the church. He was a hermit in a cave outside of Bethlehem, very near to where Christ was born. And he died on September 30th in 420 AD. I've sat in his cave. I've pondered his thoughts there. St. Paul loves to echo the Old Testament. The Old Testament was the only scripture that God had revealed at the time. And the Jewish scriptures were in Hebrew scrolls. Now, the Old Testament... Alexander the Great had Hellenized the world during the Greek Empire, right? And Greece fell to Rome in 146 BC, 146 years before Christ. The people of Israel spoke Greek And the Hebrew scrolls were translated into Greek. And so the Greek Old Testament, or it's called the Septuagint, it means 70, 70 transcribers or translators. It's the earliest Koine Greek translation of the books of the Hebrew Bible. And there's also various biblical apocryphan, deuterocanonical books included. But in the second century BC, the Hebrew scrolls were available in the Greek Language and the Greek Old Testament scriptures were widely used at the time of Jesus Christ and St. Paul of Tarsus and early Christianity because most of the Christian proselytes, the God-fearers, and other Gentile sympathizers of Hellenistic Judaism couldn't read Hebrew. The text of the Greek Old Testament is quoted more often than the original Hebrew Bible text in the Greek New Testament. That's why we know Jesus used it and Paul used it, especially Paul in his epistles and the Apostolic Fathers. That's what they quoted from the Greek Septuagint. Now Catholics adopted the Hebrew revelations of God, and Catholics adopted the Hebrew Torah revelation of Moses. And we adopted the Jewish feast days, like Shavuot, we talked about, is Pentecost, and we adopted the Jewish prophets and we adopted the Jewish Psalms. They were the prayers. We pray them at almost at every Mass. Every Mass, along with an Old Testament Jewish reading, at every Mass. We adopted the Jewish Messiah as our Lord and King. And this Sunday, November 22nd, we will celebrate the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, commonly referred to as Feast of Christ the King or Christ the King Sunday. That feast was instituted in 1925 by Pope Pius XI. For the Roman rite of the Catholic Church, it ends our ordinary time and sends us into the Advent season. We believe the Jewish Messiah is our Lord. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, eternal King of the entire universe. And we as Catholics make pilgrimages, thousands of miles to see where our Jewish King's homeland was. For instance, it's 6,505 miles from Omaha to Jerusalem and back again, 6,505 miles. So it's a 13,000 mile round trip. I've done it three times. I've traveled 39,030 miles to see where Jesus lived. The holiest spot in Israel for the Jew is the Holy of Holies, the Temple Mount. But the holiest spot in Israel for Christians is where Christ died and where he rose from the death, the Holy Sepulchre. And this March, March 30th, 2020, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was closed for the first time in nearly 700 years due to COVID-19. Millions come every year to touch the Western Wall. All that's left of the temple, just the Western Wall and notes are wedged into the cracks of the Western Wall from all over the world. When Barack Obama was running for presidential office in 2008, he visited the wall on a trip to Israel and put a note in a crack. And that note got removed after he left by a student and it was sold to the press. And the newspaper published the note. Here's what Obama said on King David Stationery, the King David Hotel. Lord, protect my family and me. Forgive my sins and help me guard against pride and despair. Give me the wisdom to do what is right and just and make me an instrument. Of your will. I thought that a beautiful prayer. The newspaper endured much criticism, including from the Western Wall's chief rabbi for violating the sanctity of an individual's prayer at the wall by publishing it. President Trump became the first sitting U.S. president to visit the Western Wall. He put his note in, and we don't know what it said, but more than one million prayer notes are placed in these crevices at the Western Wall every single year. The Western Wall's chief rabbi and his team clear out the Western Wall notes two times a year, right before Rosh Hashanah and again before Passover. They take a ritual bath. They cleanse themselves. They work very carefully to take the notes out of the wall with brooms and sticks so they don't harm them. And the notes are placed in bags without being read. And they're buried in the cemetery at the Mount of Olives on the east of Jerusalem's old city. The slips of paper are treated the same as pieces of Torah scrolls or damaged prayer books. They're forbidden to destroy. Now in March of 2000, an ailing Pope John Paul II navigated 86 steps to reach the Western Wall and place his note in its stones. He was hunched and leaning on a cane, and John Paul II crowned his Holy Land pilgrimage with a stunning gesture to the Jews at their holiest site, shuffling slowly up to the wall and placing a plea of forgiveness. He had said these words in his address earlier, expressing sorrow over the past errors of his church. He said, God of our fathers, you chose Abraham and his descendants to bring your name to the nations. We are deeply saddened by the behavior of those who in the course of history have caused these children of yours to suffer, and we are asking your forgiveness. We wish to commit ourselves to genuine brotherhood with the people of the covenant. What John Paul understood is that there There is a unity to the two covenants. They are one, the old and the new. Jesus didn't destroy the old, he fulfilled the old. And after a private time of prayer, the Pope made the sign of the cross and momentarily placed his trembling hand on the rocks, placing his note. On May 12th of 2009, Benedict also visited the Western Wall. He prayed for peace, for the monotheistic religions of the world, the Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews. On May 26th of 2014, Pope Francis visited the wall. He placed the Our Father Prayer, written out in Spanish, and signed it, Francis. My friends, Catholicism springs from Judaism. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism, and he is the Lord of all, the eternal king of a universal church. Catholic means universal. And Paul told the Ephesians, these new Christians in Ephesus, he said there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope and belong to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Salvation is for all. There are four marks of the kingdom of Christ the king on earth, his church, one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic, and it's for all. St. Paul understood that. He poured over the Jewish Old Testament, making the connections by the power of the Holy Spirit. The first five Catholic popes of the first century were from all different places. Peter was a Jew from Israel. Linus, the second pope, was Italian from Rome. Cletus was Greek. Clemens was Roman, Italian again. And the fifth pope, Evastercis, was a Hellenized Jew. Early Christians were willing to die for this newfound faith, starting with Deacon St. Stephen, who, his death, his martyrdom, was ordered by St. Paul. St. James in Acts 12 was the first of the apostles to be beheaded at Herod's order. And all of the apostles, with the exception of Judas and John, uh, were martyred. And many, many, many other hundreds and hundreds of early Christians in the first century were martyred for their faith, this newfound fulfillment of the Jewish faith. And it's the blood of the martyrs that seeded the church, Tertullian told us, are. Catholic Church was built on the blood of the martyrs as they spread across the Roman Empire and across the entire world as martyrs, starting... With the martyrdom of Jesus Christ on the cross, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, Constantine I, also known as Constantine the Great, was the Roman emperor from 306 to 337 AD for 31 years. His mother, Helena, was Greek and of lowly estate. His father, Constantinus I, was Aurelian, an army officer. He became one of the four emperors of the tetrarchy. Constantinius, Helen's husband, divorced her. For a time, she lived alone with only her son, Constantine, to comfort her. She never remarried, and Constantine grew up very attached and devoted to his mother. Eusebius reports that Helena was actually converted to Christianity by her son, Constantine. Over time, the Christian church and the faith grew more and more organized. And in 313 AD, Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which accepted Christianity within the Roman Empire. And only 10 years later, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Emperor. Under Constantine. Recorded notes of 50 Bibles of Constantine is noted by Eusebius. He's bishop of Caesarea. He was the historian of Constantine, and he writes about the 50 Bibles of Constantine. They were in the original Greek language, and he commissioned them in 331 AD, and they were prepared by Bishop Eusebius Of Caesarea. He quoted the letter of commissioning in his biography of Constantine called The Life of Constantine, and it is the only surviving source that we know of that tells about the existence of these 50 Bibles. The 50 Greek Bibles were made for the use of the Bishop of Constantinople in the growing number of new Christian churches that were growing around the empire and very much so in that new city. Constantinople, which is present-day Istanbul, Turkey. It became the capital of the Roman Empire, then the Byzantine Empire, then the brief Crusader State Empire, known as the Latin Empire, and the Ottoman Empire. Now, St. Helena and Saint Constantine, they're both saints. Helena goes on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land to find the true cross of Jesus Christ. And as they are excavating, there's, uh, they're building a new church on a site and they discover the true relics of the cross and the nails used in the crucifixion. It's a wonderful story. I don't have time for it now, but she takes them all the way back to Rome. At the site of her discovery, her son, Constantine, later built the church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, Israel. She venerates, goes home, and venerates the relics that she had found in her private chapel, in her palace, and upon her death, that gets converted into the Basilica of the Holy Cross in Jerusalem in Rome, Italy. It's still there to this day. I've visited it a couple times. It's a wonderful church. And you can see there, she has brought ho- back soil from Calvary that is under the The chapel. And she has many relics that she collected on her pilgrimage, pieces of the true cross, some of the wood from the cross of one of the thieves, part of the crown of thorns. Most of that went to France. It's stored at Notre Dame, a holy nail, and the Titus Crucis, which is the title panel that hung on the cross. It's a beautiful asp painted with her story of finding the true cross. She has a beautiful statue in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome as well. And her sarcophagus, her is is in the Vatican Museum. She died in 3330 A.D., Now, both the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church recognize Empress Helen as a saint. As Christianity was spreading through the known world, it needed a universal language that all members in this growing expanse could understand. Saint Jerome would take those Greek Old Testament scriptures and translate them into Latin. And Latin became the official language of the universal church in the 4th century AD. Once that scripture was translated into Latin, the universal church could have have a universal tongue, and all the masses, the liturgies around the entire world could be prayed in Latin, in Germany, around 440 the goldsmith John Johannes Gutenberg invented the printing press, which started a printing revolution. Bibles could be printed in every language. In 1995, over 5 billion copies of Bibles had been sold and distributed. China is officially an atheist country, but most Bibles today are printed in China. Today, also, there's electronic Bible access, any translation you want, any language you want. So when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses to the end." of the earth. That's capable now. We're capable, we're willing, able to do that, to make disciples of all nations his final commission. The Second Vatican Council allowed the use of vernacular languages at masses now, and Latin gets termed a dead language. You guys, the church encourages our study of history. It is his story. Time is marked by by the incarnation of Christ. Many conversions to Catholicism have happened by people studying history and the apostolic church fathers. Now, back to Paul's letter to the Romans. We ended last week, chapter 9, and... It, we were talking about Israel's unbelief. And let's just start at that verse 30, chapter 9. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is righteousness through faith. But that Israel who pursued righteousness, which is based on law, did not succeed in fulfilling that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it through faith. But as though it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make men stumble, a rock that will make them fall, and he who believes in him will not be put to shame. That rock, that stumbling stone is Jesus Christ, and many of the Jews missed it. Early on, the Holy Spirit had not been poured out yet, so their minds weren't illuminated. They didn't have those gifts of knowledge and understanding. And right judgment and wisdom. But Jesus had told them in John 15 when the counselor comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness to me. The Romans, the Jews, I'm sorry, have stumbled over the stumbling stone. He who believes in him will not be put to shame. Jesus tells his disciples that you also are going to be my witnesses because you have been with me from the beginning. But Some of the Jews missed the clues. They missed all the clues. Many Jews missed the advent of their own Messiah. Jesus became a stumbling block, a stumbling rock, a rock that would make them fall. Why was Jesus a rock that made Jews stumble? The idea of a stumbling stone is an odd thing. Who would deliberately place a rock for people to trip over? St. Paul quotes directly from the prophet Isaiah in Romans 9, showing that the stone that's tripped over is because of rejection because it is rejected rather than being received by faith first paul quotes from isaiah 8:14 where the prophet Describe the Lord as a rock of offense and a stumbling stone to all of Israel. And Paul insists this is not a new idea for the Jewish people, that they would struggle to accept the idea of righteousness being found through faith in Jesus Christ. Because Isaiah 8 says, And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inheritance of Jerusalem, to both houses, the north, the northern kingdoms, the tentacles, to the north and the two to the south, Judah, a stone, an offense, a rock, a stumbling block to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare. In Romans 9, Paul will then quote from Isaiah 28. Therefore says the Lord God, behold, I'm laying in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and he who believes will not be in haste. Other translations, will not be stricken with panic, will not be disturbed, will not be pr- Put to shame. The believers will not be put to shame. So, in more literal terms, such people will not be shown to be foolish for believing in Christ. This symbolically is the stone that the Israelites have tripped over. And Paul writes, because they refuse to believe in Christ, wishing instead to prove their righteousness by their own works, works of the ceremonial law. This isn't Paul's original idea. Remember the presentation of Jesus in Luke chapter two. His father and mother were amazed at the things being said by Simeon, who was full of the Holy Spirit. Simeon blessed his parents and said to his mother, Mary, behold, this child, and it's a capital C, this child, the anointed one, is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall of many. He's going to make people fall and stumble. He's that stumbling stone. Your child's going to be a stumbling block for many in Israel. Behold, he's appointed for the fall and rise. He's going to be assigned to be opposed. And a sword's going to pierce your soul. And many hearts are going to be revealed. They're either going to believe or not believe. Simeon knew this with his whole being, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he is holding God's anointed one. And he will be the cause of many to fall. They won't believe. Simeon prophesied this at 40 days old. The child will be a stumbling block for many in Israel. Many will not believe. He is the stumbling stone, the one, capital one, the anointed one to be tripped over because many will reject him rather than receive him by faith. This isn't what they thought their Messiah would look like. Psalm 18, 118 says, you will give thanks I will give you thanks for you answered me and you have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus himself is going to teach them about this principle of being a stone. It's in the parable of the tenants. All three synoptics have it. Just listen and try to really listen carefully and figure this out. Jesus went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard. He rented it to some farmers and went away for a long time. At harvest, he sent a servant. So the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit that was from the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty handed. He sent another servant But that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? Ah, I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And the people heard this and they said, God forbid. And Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. He's coming to judge the living and the dead. The teachers of the law, the chief priests looked away. They wanted to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, and they were afraid of the people. So that landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is his kingdom. The tenants are Israel's religious leaders and all who reject his son the servants were the prophets he sent ahead of time and the faithful believers and the beloved son is jesus christ and yes when he was killed the inheritance will be theirs because salvation is offered to all all who repent the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief of the corner stone everyone who falls on that stone will be broken and anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. Paul is going to preach this to the new Ephesian believers, the Christians, the Gentile converts in Ephesus, when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, 19, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, the Jews, and also members of his household. You're one of us now, but you're built on the foundation of the apostles, the prophets and Jesus Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. You're built on all these Jews, the Jewish apostles, the Jewish prophets, and the Jewish Messiah. And you're part of us. And Jesus is our chief cornerstone. He tells the Corinthians, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud, in the sea, and they ate the same spiritual food, and they drank the same spiritual drink, and they drank from the spiritual rock, that cornerstone, the rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. They drank from Jesus Christ. The old Moses would strike the rock. The new Moses, Jesus Christ, was gushing out of the rock. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them all along the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Salvation was offered to all, but not all received it. Only two in that first generation, only two made it to the promised land. You know who they are. Joshua and Caleb. One more Jesus rock example, and then we'll go on. But Daniel, Daniel the prophet, he's taken away in the Babylonian exile, and he serves King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and the king has a dream. And the king won't tell his dream. He's very upset by the dream, but he won't tell the dream to anyone. He wants them to tell him what he dreamt. None of the Babylonians could do it. They call for Daniel, the Jewish exile. Daniel says, you saw, O king, and behold a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding in brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold, the breast were arms of silver, the thighs, the belly were bronze, the legs were iron, and the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it smote the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold altogether were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer. threshing floor and the wind carried them away so not a trace of them could be found but the stone the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth this was your dream. And now I will tell you, we will tell you, the king, its interpretation. So he figured out the dream by no one telling him, by the power of God. And now he will give the interpretation. He knows a stone is coming. It's not made of human hands. It's going to crush all other worldly kingdoms. And it will be a stone that is an eternal kingdom, one without end to rule all otherworldly kingdoms. And Daniel goes on in verse 44, in those days, kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, nor shall its sovereignty be left to another people. It will break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand for Ever, As you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain. Its interpretation is sure. It's the kingdom of God. And it starts with the church on earth. And it starts with the incarnation of the Jewish Messiah in the womb of a young virgin in Nazareth. And he will reign over the house of Jacob for how long? Forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. He's the rock. It's the eternal kingdom predicted in Daniel 2, a kingdom with no end. Mary's son will be the rock, not hewn from human hands. It will crush all other worldly kingdoms. It will be an eternal kingdom with an eternal kingdom king. He tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. So you are a king then. Oh, you say I am. St. Paul knows the Old Testament readings, but the Holy Spirit is illuminating his mind and connecting all the dots. Back to Romans 10. Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live it. We heard Paul earlier quoting Habakkuk, the, the prophet, but the righteous man would live by faith. But Paul goes on to say, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. That was part one of Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 10, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible studies, visit seekingtruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.